going to be looking this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter 1, verse 18. You can find that text uh, printed in your bulletin. I was listening to an interview with uh, Tullian Chabidian this week. For those of you who don't know who Tullian Chabidian is, uh, he's a grandson of the evangelist Billy Graham. He, he grew up in a Christian home, uh, but he got to be the younger brother, prodigal son thing for a while, sort of ran off and did his own thing. Eventually he was converted, came to faith in Christ, felt a call uh, to ministry, planted a church in Florida, and then after a few years of doing that, merged with a, with a very large uh, mega church. There were two very different cultures of those two churches, and so it was kind of a, a rocky merger, and it was a difficult time for Tully, and he said during that time, uh, a lot of his idols and his insecurities began to be exposed. He was under a lot of stress. Uh, and eventually it came out that during that time he had kind of fallen off the wagon, so to speak. He had uh, multiple affairs. He was unfaithful to his wife. Uh, he, was, he, he lost his job, lost his wife, and eventually divorced. Uh, and there are some people, this has been, kind of been in the news over the last year or so in our circles, some people feel that the situation wasn't handled properly. Some people think that he, he didn't properly repent this sort of thing. And I'm not here to, to hold him up as, a, as an example of any sort, uh, good or bad, in the way it's been handled. But the question I want to raise from that is, is there any hope for the Tullians of the world? For people that just royally blow everything? Is, is there any hope for the Tullians of the world? People that seem to have it all together, but then you find out really don't. Is there any hope for them? And to maybe put a finer point on it and, and make this a little bit more uncomfortable for a moment, is there any hope for the Matt Lowers and the Harvey Weinsteins of the world? Because that's, that's what's in the news right there. Is there any source of grace and forgiveness that that big and that radical? The good news of Christmas is that there is a source of grace of that big, that big and that radical. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Sinners. Sinners like Tully, and sinners like you, and sinners like me. So, basically, we're going to have two points this morning. Uh, we're all a mess. Jesus came into the world to save us from our mess. And then, what do we do with that? What are we going to do with that? So, let's, let's read this. This is from the Gospel of Matthew beginning in chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray again. Father, would you be with us 
this morning. Uh, you be with us and, and help us get past the things that we get hung up on when we think about you. Uh, would you help us to get past our own sin and, and see that there really is a Savior uh, big enough who comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins? Uh, and would you help us, uh, Father, perhaps if we haven't ever done that, to, to receive and to rest upon Him alone for our salvation, even this morning? We ask you in His name. Amen. So, kind of two big points. First of all, we're all a mess. We're all a mess. To make this, I want to read something that's a little bit lengthy to make this point. This is from an article by uh, Addie Pratt, who's written recently, and it's called Love the Art, Hate the Artist? Question mark. All right, so what she says, we're feeling pretty good about ourselves these days. We're doing a lot of smirking, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of handing down of fatwas on Twitter. When we cut someone off in traffic or lie to protect ourselves, we say, well, at least I'm not Harvey Weinstein or Louis C.K. or Kevin Spacey. I'm not that bad. We enjoy this. We always have. It's pleasant to publicly denounce others. Lately, we've been having a really good time. It seems like every other famous man has been exposed as a creep or worse, a legitimate sexual predator. We look at our phones with anticipation every morning. What fresh hell we can eat on another dirty celebrity. These days, it's a common refrain. I can't read that book. Haven't you heard what the author did? Or don't watch that movie. Don't you know the director believed X about Y? It's soothing with art or pop culture to draw lines around people <coughs> excuse me, and put ourselves on the other side. He is evil, and because I can say so, I must be good. I have the moral clarity to name and define his badness, and thus I am not counted in his number. Sure, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but some have fallen more than others, am I right? This is a nice worldview. I like it. It makes me feel comfortable and secure. Give me my self-approving worldview, and I will give you a scathing social media rebuke. And then she quotes from another article, who's uh, another writer who's talking about the same sort of thing, and, and they write, I can sense there's something entirely unacceptable lurking inside me, even in the midst of my righteous indignation when I complain about Woody Allen. I know that on some level I'm not an entirely upstanding citizen myself. Sure, I'm attuned to my husband and thoughtful with my friends. I keep a cozy house, listen to my husband, and, my, and am reasonably kind to my parents. In everyday deed and thought, I'm a decent enough human. But I'm something else as well, something vaguely resembling a, well, monster. The Victorians understood this feeling. It's why they gave us the stark bifurcations of Dorian Gray, of Jekyll and Hyde. I suppose this is the human condition, this sneaking suspicion of our own badness. It lies at the heart of our fascination with people who do awful things. Something in us, in me, chimes to that awfulness, recognizes it in myself, is horrified by that recognition, and then thrills to the drama of loudly denouncing the monster in question. And then, going back to the original article, she writes, but this author talking about that last quote, is reluctant to make a stand at the conclusion of her article. In fact, she closes the piece with a list of questions. What is to be done about monsters? Can and should we love their work? Are all ambitious artists monsters? And then in a tiny voice, am I a monster? And then Pratt writes, I loved her essay. 
But I felt a small wave of disappointment with this conclusion. I wanted more definition. But after a short pause, I realized that my theology compels me to take it a step further. I'm willing to say in a large voice, yes, you're a monster and I'm a monster. We're all monsters. As this charming pick-me-up from Romans asserts, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We never want to be in the same boat with the dirtbag poets and directors and rock stars, but maybe we always have been. Maybe we've been rowing alongside them all the time. They just experienced the misfortune of having the searchlight exposed in first. Maybe we've been rowing alongside them all the time. They just experienced the misfortune of having the searchlight exposed them first. You know, it, it struck me when I was thinking about this text this week, especially verse 21, where Matthew says that Jesus will save his people from their sins. And I was thinking, like, why does that just not wow us and amaze us that, that this is in the Bible? Uh, maybe it's because we don't think that sin is that big a deal. Maybe we would be more excited if Matthew had said Jesus has come to save us all from cancer. Like, I could get excited about telling people about that because people would connect with that and be thrilled about that. Or maybe it's because we really don't think we're that bad. And that we, what we really think is that the gospel is for pretty good people. And, and so because we think that the gospel isn't that big a deal. And what the church becomes, what we think of the church as we think, well, the gospel is, is for pretty good people. And so the church is really kind of a moral club for pretty good people as well. And when we think that way, that, that creates all kinds of spiritual neuroses when I think the church is for pretty good people. On the one hand, I can go to the extreme of becoming very self-righteous, uh, dividing the world into us and them, and let's make sure we keep a big fat wall between us and them. Or I can become trapped in my own sin because, well, the church is for pretty good people, and I'm, if I'm honest with myself, I know I'm not a pretty good person, and I've got to keep up the act and so we can get trapped in these lives of sin and despair with no one to confess our struggles to. Steve Brown uh, is a pastor who Tullian confided in during his struggles. And, and Brown has said there are things he would have handled differently. But he says, look, this is what I was trying to do in listening to him. He said, if you ever need to tell someone safe about your sins, I'm the guy. The church really isn't a very safe place. I wish it, I wish it was, but it isn't. So most of us hide the reality of who we are, what we've done, and the shame we feel. I wanted people to have at least one place where they could feel safe and could deal with their sin and shame. And do you ever feel that? Like, like the church doesn't feel like a safe place to really confess the things that you really struggle with. And, and why is that? I think in part it's because we bought into this lie that the church is for pretty good people. It's not for, uh, the gospel is for pretty good people. It's not for the moral messes that we actually are. So we're either blind to that and we're angry and self-righteous, or on the other hand, we're fearful 
and hiding and pretending. Now, every person here is a is a mess. Every person here is a mess in one way or the other. We just all haven't had the misfortune of having the searchlight expose our mess. Or maybe we just haven't been exposed to the right set of circumstances that have the ability to really draw out the mess that's within us. We're all a mess. But there's good news in this, right? Because Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to rescue us from our mess. Verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. There's redemption in the gospel. Ruby Sales, I don't know if you've ever heard the name before. Ruby Sales is a, is a civil rights activist. Uh, her life was actually saved during the civil rights movement in 1964 when an Episcopal seminary student actually stepped in front of her and took a bullet for her. Uh, and she was given a talk recently in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, and she was asked about the possibility of future white nationalist rallies in Charlottesville. And she was trying to discourage violence as a legitimate answer to racism. And she said this, We certainly don't do this by chasing one right-wing neo-Nazi group after the other. It strikes me that the movement chased us and now we're chasing them. And then she goes on to say, Justice should not be confused with revenge. Any call for justice that does not offer a pathway for redemption is revenge, not justice. I know it's not popular, but any movement that says that people are trapped by their history and cannot change is not a hopeful movement. That's called moral nihilism. We've got to really understand that there are ways toward redemption. And I I, I might nuance it by saying that we've got to really understand that there is a way in Jesus Christ to redemption because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you don't have to be pretty good to qualify for that. You just have to be a sinner to qualify for the redemption that Jesus brings. Uh, the, the drain from our kitchen and laundry room is all tied together. And about once a year, it seems lately at least, that drain clogs up. And we've got a utility sink in our basement. And so when that drain, it's on the same drain pipe. And so when that drain clogs up, all that water comes back up through that utility sink. And often we don't see it at first because we're not in that room all the time. So you go in and there's this big mess. you got to clean it up. And, and the first time this happened, I called a plumber, right? Like, oh, somebody, I can't fix this. The second time this happened, I called John Wright because John Wright can fix anything. And, and you know, we got, a, we got a plumbing snake and we cleaned it out and everything's okay. The third time this happened, I said, okay, I know how to do this now. And so I went and bought like a 10-foot plumbing snake, 10, 15 feet, doesn't help. And it was like one of those cheap ones that's rusted immediately when you use it, right? So, so then I called Michael Wilcox and said, if you got a longer plumbing snake, and he's like, yeah, so I gave you that, it's about 20 feet. And I put that in there, that doesn't work. So I go to Home Depot and get the 50-foot plumbing snake and, and ram it in there long enough to finally break up the clog, and, and I feel, you know, like my man credentials are validated, and, I'm, and, I, and you guys know this feeling, and, and I've done it myself, because, you know, like we, we like to think we can, we can do 
things ourselves, at least with the help of YouTube, right? Like, I can, I can figure out how to do this. And that, that bleeds over into how we think about our, our character flaws as well. Because we start to think, I can, I can do this. If you just give me enough of the right books to read, I can figure out how to deal with this, this mess that's in my life. Or, or at least I can manage my sin. Like, I can learn how to kind of keep it, keep it under so it doesn't, like, overflow into the basement and mess everybody's life. I, I, can, I can keep a lid on it because we're do-it-ourselves kind of people. The bad news is that we're fooling ourselves when we say this. We, we can't fix ourselves. The good news is Jesus came in the world to do something about that. Jesus came in the world to save people who are busy trying to save themselves. How does he do that? How does he save sinners? And that's what Christmas is all about. You know, a couple of weeks ago we mentioned the polyjuice potion that's in Harry Potter where you take some of the potion if you drink it, you take on the form of another person. Well, what Matthew is telling us, what the scriptures are telling us is that in order to save people from their sins Jesus took on the form of a man. He took on human flesh. He he became a person. But it wasn't temporary. He didn't like revert back. He took on human flesh for all eternity. Fully God and fully man. He was born of a woman and yet conceived by the Holy Spirit so that as he took on human flesh he was a human being without sin. Fully God. Fully man. God come to be with us and enter into our world in order to rescue us from our world. Emmanuel. God with us. He walked in our shoes. He was tempted as you're tempted. So that, that when we talk about Jesus, Jesus never says to you, I really can't understand that you'd be wrestling with that temptation. He never says that because Jesus knows what it is to be tempted as we are tempted. The, the, the Jesus of the Bible not only was tempted, he knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to suffer. He was a man of sorrows, we find out. He was beaten and abused and tortured and crucified. He understands our temptation, but he also understands our suffering. He understands the weight that that is to us. He understands our suffering because he knows what it means to suffer. And then on the cross, he experienced the ultimate suffering. A righteous man, one who was without sin, Dying for sinners, taking the, the killing curse upon himself for us. How does, how does Jesus save his people from their sins? It's through the cross. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, one of my favorite shows on Netflix is in its last season now. It's called Longmire. I don't know. I, I know a few of you watch it. If you don't, you really should watch this show. I, I'll recommend this one. Um, well, Longmire is an old school Montana sheriff who carries a gun but doesn't carry a cell phone. Uh, and so, in in season five and six, he's got a good friend, Henry Standing Bear, who's been kidnapped. He's been taken out into the desert. He's staked into the ground, kind of spread eagle. Uh, no food, no water, and he's left there to die. 
And Longmire eventually figures out where Henry is, and, and he, he goes to him, and he pulls the stakes out of the ground, and he uses the stakes to, to make a makeshift cot to kind of put Henry on, and then drag him, you know, miles out of the desert. Uh, at one point, he's he's dragging him out, and he he knows it's rained recently, so he's looking under a rock trying to find water, and he gets bit by a rattlesnake while he's doing that. And Henry's like half dead, looks at him, and he says. You really need to buy a cell phone. It's like you, you really have, which is how I feel when I'm trying to contact Philip Swice Good, those of you who know how Philip is. And so he eventually he eventually gets he, he gets Henry home, he gets him in the hospital and he and he's nursed back to health. And I just thought, you know, that's that's us. And that's a picture of what Jesus does for us. We we've been kidnapped by our own desires. And we're dying of thirst because we keep trying to, to, to quench our thirst, to quench our longings and, and things other than God, things that will never satisfy us. And Jesus comes and he drags us back home. He rescues us from our sin and he nurses us back to health. Now, I, I think it's a good illustration. It's kind of an incomplete illustration in that because... What really happens is that Jesus comes in and he allows himself to be strapped to the floor of the desert, that is, the cross. And he takes there what our sin deserves. That's the way we're able to go free, is that Jesus dies for us. He didn't just drag us out. He had to die to drag us out. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. You know, actually the text says, what the text says is Jesus came to the world to save his people from their sins. Well, who are Jesus' people? John 1 tells us that Jesus came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And so how can I know if I'm one of Jesus' people? How can I know that he actually came to drag me out of the desert of my sin? It's simply by believing His name. Believing in His name. Receiving and resting on Him alone for salvation as He has offered to you in the Gospel. You and I are a mess. But Jesus came in the world to rescue us from our mess. And so the question then becomes, what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Um, the Advent reading this morning, you, you may have thought this is kind of an unusual Advent reading. I, I like part of it's familiar, but part of this is just kind of strange. Uh, the Advent reading from, from Isaiah 7. And we read Isaiah 7 because Isaiah 7 is what Matthew quotes from in our text this morning when he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, Isaiah 7 is an interesting passage, and hear me for a minute, because I think it's helpful if you understand this background. Um, Ahaz, and Isaiah 7, is the king of Judah. The nation of Israel at this point has been split into two countries, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Israel in the north and Syria, those two kings, are threatening to come in and attack Judah, where Ahaz is the king. And the prophet Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he says, don't worry about those jokers. God is going to take care of them. Everything's going to be okay. And he even tells Ahaz, 
you, you should ask God for a sign to reassure you that he's actually going to do what he said he's going to do. And Ahaz tries to sound all pious, and he says, I'm not going to test God by asking him for a sign. But the reality is, he's already decided to call the king of Assyria for help and pledge to be his servant so that he will help him. So he's already kind of decided, God is going to be no help to me. I'm going to call the other big boy on the block to come in and take care of these guys instead of trusting myself to God. And I think that's kind of a good picture of us. Like, we realize that we're uh, in, we, we realize we're a mess, but we're like, I'm not that bad. Like, I'm kind of a mess, but I'm not that bad of a mess. I'm, I'm pretty good compared to other people. There, there, I don't know that I need a big Savior. Uh, or maybe we're even not thinking in, in spiritual terms, and we're just looking for something to get us out of the muck and mire of this world. And that's all we really want, just enough money or a good enough relationship or a good enough career just to, to make me feel okay for a little while. And we hear this gospel thing, we're like, you know, God, this Jesus thing is nice, but I'm doing okay by myself. And like Ahaz, we turn to our own Assyria. We turn to things other than God. And so Ahaz refuses to trust God. He won't ask him for a sign. He says, I don't need a sign. I've got this all worked out in my mind. And he's like texting the king of Assyria right there, like, please come help me. These kings are going to destroy me. And then this really interesting thing happens. God says to Ahaz, okay, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I know you don't want a sign, but I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And he says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then verse 16 of Isaiah 7 seems to indicate that this child, Emmanuel, will be born during the days of Ahaz. Look at, turn back to your Advent reading. Let's put it in here. Verse, six, verse 15 and 16. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So this is about somebody in Ahaz's day. Well, that's the way it seems. So if it's about somebody in Ahaz's day, how can it also then be about Jesus? Do you see the question there? Uh, Matthew likes to do this in the way he talks about prophecy. Uh, And and the way this kind of works is this. Matthew, as he's writing, he sees this partial fulfillment in the days of Ahaz. And then he sees a fuller fulfillment in the days of Jesus Christ. Uh, Think about a, a cup being partially filled with water in the days of Isaiah and then filled to the rim and overflowing in the days of Jesus Christ. So who was his son in Isaiah's day? And I don't want to go too far into all this. Who was his child? It may very well have been Isaiah's son. Uh, If you read chapter 8, it begins to point in that direction. We read, Then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. All right? So here's this son that's going to be born that's promised to Isaiah. So how does that fit in then with the idea that the virgin will conceive a son? It may be simply in Isaiah's day that this was Isaiah's second wife. He wasn't married to her yet. She was a virgin at that time. 
they would get married, she would conceive, and she would have a child. There was nothing supernatural about it in the partial fulfillment. But then Jesus comes and he blows the whole thing up. He is conceived by a virgin. There's this partial fulfillment, and there's this larger, more supernatural fulfillment in Jesus' day. But here's the point. God says, ask me for a sign. Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. God says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And that sign is going to be a sign to you both of judgment and of hope. It's a sign of hope because I am going to take care of those two kings that are threatening you. But then it's a sign of judgment because I'm going to use Assyria that you're calling on for help. They're going to come wipe out those other two kings. But Assyria's not going to stop and get home after that. Assyria's going to keep coming down south. And they're going to bring judgment on you as well, Ahaz. So that you're going to, you're going to make it, but you're going to be like somebody standing on their tiptoes to keep from drowning, and it's not going to be pretty. See, the, the very thing that Ahaz was trusting in instead of God is the thing that turns into devours him at the end of the day. Somebody said that Ahaz calling Assyria for help is like a mouse calling a cat to take care of the two rats that are bothering them. The king of Assyria came and he helped for a little while and then he turned on Ahaz. The things we turn to instead of God are the things that turn on us and devour us. And the reality of it is, is that either you and I are looking to Jesus to save us, or we're looking somewhere else. And at the end of the day, that somewhere else, whatever that may be, is actually a false refuge. There's really no refuge at all. And what Isaiah and Matthew and the whole Bible is really trying to do is, is, is trying to call us away from those false saviors that we look to and cause to put our trust in the one who really can save us. Now, you might be saying, well, I'd like to trust God. I, I wish he'd just give me a sign that, to let me know that he's near. What Matthew is telling is that he has given us that sign. He's given us a sign, and his name is Emmanuel. God came here in the person of Jesus Christ. And he bore our sin on the cross to save us from our sin. And the call then to us is to, is to turn away from our false saviors. To quit asking the king of Assyria for help, whoever that might be for you. Whatever that might be. And to turn and rest and trust in Christ alone for your salvation as he has offered you in the gospel. So you've got to let go of your false savior to grab a hold of the true Savior. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, in our community group, Keith Gruber shared kind of a funny story. He put the video up on our community group Facebook page. And it's basically how hunters catch baboons. And you may have heard this or, or seen this before. It's kind of funny. What they'll do is they'll go and they'll like find a mound of dirt and dig a small hole in the mound of dirt. And then it takes a melon seed and they put them inside the hole. And the baboon sees this and is very interested by all this. So it comes up and he sticks his hand in the hole and he grabs hold of the melon seed. And then the hunter comes out and he catches the baboon. 
Well, how's he able to catch him? I and mean, he got his hand in there. Why can't he get his hand out? He can't get his hand out because he's, he's made a fist. And he's clenching those melon seeds so tight that he can't, he can't get away. He's caught. What are you holding on to this morning? What are, what are you holding on to this morning instead of Jesus Christ? What are those, what are those melons? Maybe, maybe it is your career. Maybe it is your ability to, to make wealth. Maybe it is your, your, you, you found the perfect, comfortable, happy place. You're just holding on to that. And that's going to make my life okay. Maybe it's that you feel that you have the moral high ground over liberals. Or maybe it's that you feel you have the moral high ground over conservatives. And, and that's the thing that you're holding on to. And what the gospel is calling us to is to let go of those false saviors and grab hold of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me say one last thing before I close. It may be that this all kind of rings hollow to you. Uh, it, it, it may be that this rings hollow to you because while you can, you can see your own sin, You've also been sinned against in ways that are hard for you to talk about. Uh, even me using illustrations like Harvey Weinstein, like that's that's uncomfortable because maybe you've been sinned against in that sort of way. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus came to rescue us from the ways we've sinned and from the ways we've been sinned against as well. He came to save us from the sin in here and from the sin out there. He came to make all things new. And that's the hope of Christmas. And no matter which one of those voices is louder to you right now, your own sin, or the sin of others and the way they've sinned against you, there's healing for you in Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to talk to somebody about that. Talk to me about that. Talk to one of our elders. Talk to a matter I get about that, about the forgiveness and the healing that can be found in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks that Jesus entered into the mess of this world to save us from the mess of this world. Uh, and Part of the problem, Father, is that we continue to hold on to our own ways of self-salvation and self-rescue. And so I pray that you help us to see that those ways, they don't work. They don't work. They don't bring the forgiveness. They don't bring the healing that we need. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you help us to let go of the false saviors? And would you help us to, to grab hold of the only Savior who can save us? only Savior who really loves us. His name is Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.